This evening we are in Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. In the Gospel of Mark, I haven't been pushing too hard at an overarching structure of the book, but there's blocks. Uh, it's kind of the way Mark builds his book, he builds out blocks. So there's a block of early teaching, early parables, and then the end of chapter 4 is representative miracles. And then there's a series in Galilee. But in the middle of chapter, end of chapter 10, it's uh, on the way to Jerusalem, the journey to Jerusalem, and being on the way as a metaphor for discipleship, living the way. And then we saw he gets to Jerusalem. There's uh, the temple and the fig tree, all that emblematic stuff. Uh, and then a series of questions and answers back and forth between him and the temple leadership. Uh, chapter 13 is then that big block of teaching about the destruction of the temple and the end. Well, now we come to Mark's last block. Uh, chapter 14, 15, it's the last 48 hours of Jesus' life, the passion narrative. And in fact, it's so disproportionately large, if that's the right way to say it, in Mark's gospel. Disproportionate doesn't sound right, but it is such a large portion of Mark's gospel. Some have said the gospel of Mark is almost a passion narrative with an extended prologue setting the scene. And indeed, Mark is not overt in his theology like Paul is. He's a more subtle theologian, not to say more sophisticated. Um, everything I say that sounds like it's wrong, just correct it to what should be right. I, I'm not comparing Mark and Paul in that sense, but I'm just saying Paul lays it out for us straightforward. He descended, he humbled himself, he gave himself obediently to death. Mark doesn't tell us quite so explicitly, but he puts all the pieces there so that once the scene is set... And now it's the last 48 hours. This death is significant. It's not just, oh, there's something that happened. Okay, it's significant. Um, Think of like the end of Spartacus, for example. There's all of the drama around it. But even Spartacus' death, remember how the movie ends? Uh, Somehow, uh, well, Spartacus's wife and child are coming out and whoever the friend who saves them uh, intercedes for them, saves them, they go by Spartacus, they see him. But there's some kind of a, a voiceover saying, uh, you know, this revolution failed, but another slave would be crucified in a few hundred years that would change everything. And so even Spartacus's death, in a sense, it's just another death. And yet Mark's setting up the story, this death changes everything. Uh, well, if you haven't seen Spartacus, that's neither here nor there, but one of my personal favorites. Uh, Okay, where are we at? So he's subtly putting everything in place. Um, it's a bit like, uh, you know, when you do the model car derby, the, the course is set up, everything's in place, now the car gets let go, and it's on the track. Okay, so that's where we're at in the Gospel of Mark. Now, before I read this passage, I want to ask you a question, and you're more than welcome to uh, 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 comment, answer this, or just meditate on it either way. Boy, I am on the creaky board tonight. i got to... <laughs> That's better. Okay, there we go. Uh, and I, I, I kind of wish uh, uh, Jack were here for this one, but I wonder, if you had $30,000, what would you do with it? $30,000. Maybe you have school loans? Get a new car? What do you think? Eva? Give it to the poor? That's a good thing to do with it. Don't, donate it to the poor? Children's hospital? That's a great thing. Set up a farm for needy animals to come live out. There you go. Pay okay. Pay down the mortgage. There you go. Uh, okay. What would you do with $30,000? Hold that question in your head. Okay. We're going to read Mark 14, 1 through 11. 
It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is on page uh, uh, 1011, if you need it in the church Bible. Two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came to him with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She's done what she could. She's anointed my body beforehand for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this scene from the end of your life here on earth, before your death, we ask that it would shape us as your disciples. May we see your beauty in this story. May we learn how you want us to live. May we respond faithfully. Amen. Okay, what we have here is another one of what we've called Markin sandwiches, a bit like an Oreo. You've got the Chocolate cookie on the outside, you've got the cream filling on the inside. What's the chocolate cookie here? Not as, not as good as the chocolate cookie, but what do we have on the outside of the sandwich here? Chocolate? Is that what you said? Okay, yeah. A plot to kill Jesus, and then what's the other part of it? In 10 and 11. Yeah. Yeah, so the... The scribes and chief priests are scheming at the beginning. At the end, Judas comes to them and offers to betray Jesus. And then what's in the middle here? Yeah, Abram. Um, Forgot, that's all right. The right words to say it. How about someone else? What's in the middle here? anointing of Jesus. Yeah. Uh, Not a trick question. (laughs) Yeah. So it's interesting because verses 10 and 11 could easily follow right from one and two, but Mark is putting one narrative in the middle of the other to make a point here. Or, Or verses one to two could go after the anointing of Jesus. Uh, Verses one to two, the plot against Jesus. First, it tells us that the Passover is near. Passover is one of the three main feasts in the Jewish calendar when Jewish men were expected to make pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to worship together. 
what does the celebration of Passover mark? Or comm- uh, commemorate? Is that a, what does it recall? What any kids? What's Passover celebrate? Ethan? It celebrates the Passover. And what was the Passover? <laughs> Lamb's blood over the doors, and the angels passed over, and Israel was led on their exodus out of Egypt. Okay, and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days after that. Okay, so first it's telling us it's Passover. In a sense, a little bit of a superfluous note on time, but but it's going to be key here. And the chief priests and scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth or slyly, by cunning, and kill him. Uh, note, it's not all the Jews together. And note, it's not even the Pharisees that participate. Of the groups that came and questioned Jesus, there seems to have been a division. The Pharisees still aren't for Jesus, but they're not opposed to him in the way that the temple leadership seems to be, the chief priests and the scribes. So even that debate in the temple seems to have been another mechanism that's dividing people. And indeed, that's what Jesus says, I came... Uh, in, in one passage, he says, I came to divide, to make a division, that I'm sort of this, this fork in the road, uh, that people go one way or the other. The temple leadership is seeking to arrest him by stealth and kill him. In 1118, after he cleans out the temple, the chief priests and scribes hear of it, and it says they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus. Okay, what does that mean? Maybe it just means to uh, uh, you know, tear apart his career or something like that to make him no longer respectable. Uh, but they feared him because the crowds loved him. 12.12, they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people. Now it is explicit. They want to arrest him and kill him. And then it's linked with this Passover time reference. The Passover lamb has been selected, but not during the feast because they fear a riot. It's interesting to reflect just for a moment. At least some of the people form this crowd in 15.8 who cry out to Pilate, crucify him. Okay, here the chief priests think, I don't know if the crowd will go with us if we try to seize him in a public place, but two days later, the crowd is against him. And I think that is uh, a sign of our fickle nature as people. Okay, if we see someone unjustly being arrested, we might oppose it. And yet once they're arrested and they're being tried, we kind of have a way of just thinking, well, they're probably guilty. If they were innocent, they wouldn't be in trouble with the law. That's kind of, you know, it's easy for the uh, uh, temple leadership to control the narrative once they have Jesus in their custody. Okay, setting the scene. It's Passover, there's a plot against him, but now turning the corner, thir- three through nine, the anointing of Jesus. Bethany is outside of Jerusalem, and we're told this is at the house of a man named Simon the leper. An interesting question just to think about is he still leprous at this point is he called simon the leper because he had previously been healed and yet that's just how he was known at any rate what do we know about lepers in ancient israel or or, or judea yeah eva that the one comes back to jesus is that what you're thinking of yeah yeah so jesus heals some lepers and one comes back that's true, yep, yeah, so Jesus heals a number of people who are lepers. Yeah, Gian. Well, they weren't 
supposed to be with them. They weren't supposed to be around them. But yeah. They all had leprosy. So. Yeah, they're, they're unclean, so they're meant to be away, away from them. So if we think about this contrast set up at the beginning of the chapter, the temple leadership, these are the insiders. Okay, this is, uh, I suppose they probably didn't smoke, but the smoke-filled rooms, the, the halls of power. And where's Jesus? He's outside the city at the house of an outsider for dinner. And what happens while he's there? A woman comes in with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Nard is apparently an aromatic oil from the nard root in India. Has anyone ever smelt nard? Probably needs some rebranding. That doesn't sound like the most attractive uh, in my mind. Anyways, but uh, yeah, nard, okay, yeah, I haven't either. So um, I was curious if anyone had had smelt it. Um, But from India, so think we're in Israel. This is uh, an exotic foreign product that would have had to been imported, would be costly. It's sealed in an alabaster jar to preserve it. It's so costly, in fact, that in verse 5, the disciples estimate its cost at 300 denarii. Denarii is about a day's wage for a laborer. So 30,000, I don't know. I, I was pulling out a, that was some rough, quick, not even back of the napkin math. But, uh, you know, it's a significant amount of money, the better part of a year's income for a day laborer. Um, how did this woman come by it? We're not told. Perhaps it's a family heirloom. They're sort of, uh, their savings um, that's, uh, you know, to be sold in a time of need. What does she do with it? She doesn't just pull out the stopper and pour a little bit on his head. I don't know if it had a stopper or seal, that sort of thing. But what she does is she breaks the flask. There's finality to it. It can't be sealed up. Part of it can't be held back. It is all spent. Poured out on his head. It is interesting to note it's poured out on him. It's not the usual word for anointing. So I don't think the symbolism here is sort of a messianic anointing. It's being poured out, and in fact, in a few verses, Jesus is going to say, my body is being prepared for burial. So it's not messianic so much as preparing for burial. Does that make sense so far? There's a finality to this gift. Any other observations? We're going to keep going. I just I want to make sure I'm... Okay, what's the response? Well, uh, apparently a woman entering a men's meal would have been a bit unusual in that uh, context in ancient Judea. And so perhaps even her coming into the room raised some eyebrows. But this act of exuberant devotion makes people uncomfortable. Have you ever been around someone who's just real emotional and exuberant in worship and been a little bit uncomfortable? Uh, Okay, yeah, I think... (laughs) Sometimes I, I'm not Dutch, but I feel like I very, you know, I think, I think it's, it's an instinct I have as well. Just let, let's be a little bit calm and orderly here about things. But, you know, you can, you can feel uncomfortable. But it goes beyond that. They're not just uncomfortable, they're indignant. And they say, why was it wasted? We could have sold this and given the money to the poor. Of course, uh, John's telling fills in some details that Judas in particular objected and that he was... Uh, played a bit fast and loose with the money. Uh, and so, you know, maybe, maybe it's not quite as disinterested uh, caring for the poor as they say here in Mark. At any rate, it says that they scolded her for it. Uh, and the, the word is kind of connected to the idea of flaring your nostrils. Uh, my wife 
has a good nostril flare. And she says <laughs> it's genetic, and that's true. Her mom did as well. But you know you're in trouble when the nostril... Okay, that's what they're doing here. They're <laughs> I asked her beforehand, don't worry, I'm not throwing her under the bus here. Uh, uh, but that's what they're doing. They're scolding her. They're telling her off here. There seems to be some like, you know, you've done something wrong. How does Jesus respond though? Leave her alone. Why are you troubling her? She has done something beautiful to me. Let's uh, stick with that for just a second. By the cold logic of sort of... Uh, spreadsheets, Excel, that sort of thing. Sell this, give the money to the poor. You could do so much stuff. Cost-benefit analysis, this is a waste. And yet, how does Jesus characterize it? It's something beautiful. I think there's actually something key here to thinking through uh, uh, what we might call a theology of art. That from one metric, you could say it's wasteful. You know, why spend all this time on it? You could do something much cheaper that's not as, you know, not as exuberant, not as over-the-top, not as wasteful. And yet Jesus says in this extravagant, even wasteful giving is beauty. And indeed, it seems to be rooted in creation itself. Why did God create? He didn't have to. Uh, and, and even if he decided to create, why this many galaxies? There's galaxies that are moving so fast, we'll probably never see them. What difference does it make? Why this many beetles? Why do we need 100,000 varieties of beetles? Probably 10 would have done the job. You know, but there's this exuberance. This almost wastefulness to creation. I mean, depending how you want to map how old the world is, why all these dinosaurs, or however you map it, you know, animals that no human has apparently ever seen, what's the point of them? There just seems to be this overflowing wastefulness in a positive sense to the way God creates. Something in this woman's response is, it, it connects to that. It picks it up. And so Jesus says, don't focus on the waste, the cost, but the beauty. I think, I mean, there's a real tension here that we feel even, um, you know, it, it, to get real practical. I mean, this is, this is the tension of the Building and Grounds Committee, okay? There's poor to care for, and yet there's value and beauty, but it's not value that you can plug into a spreadsheet and figure out, you know, this is exactly how much beauty is worth. Does that make sense? There's always this tension, and yet there is real value in beauty. Uh, it just doesn't compute in monetary terms, well, then Jesus says, you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. What did Jesus say a little bit earlier when the scribe was asking him about summarizing the law? What did he say the two greatest commandments were? Does anyone remember? Kids? Not kids? Or kids? You remember, Abram, what, what he said one of the great commands were? Sorry, you just got a deer in the headlight look. I didn't mean to... <laughs> Put you on the spot there. Love the Lord your God. That's the first and greatest commandment. And what's the second commandment? Love your neighbor as yourself. Caring for the poor, what would you qualify that as under those two? Loving your neighbor. That's a good thing to do. Yeah, Eva. That's what Jesus is saying here. You're, you're, you're getting ahead of me. You're getting, but you're getting to the heart of what he's saying here, that you have the neighbor with you always, but he seems to be putting himself in the position of the great commandment here. Love the Lord your God. He's saying you're not always going to have this access to me. Uh, he seems to be putting himself or identifying himself with God even in his response here. And then how does Jesus interpret it? How does he respond? 
He says, she has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Two things there. Um, it connects back to, remember at the end of uh, chapter 12, uh, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing. They contributed out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. Uh, there it's two little coins. Here it's almost a year's wages. And yet in both cases he's saying they gave what they could. There seems to be an association between these two women in the way Mark tells the story. She, get, she has done what she could. And she anointed my body beforehand for burial. Okay, the disciples, uh, perhaps even this triggers Judas's response. Like, is he really serious about all this death stuff that's not just a metaphor when he keeps talking about a cross? Like, like is he really serious, serious about being about to die? Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And this is fulfilled. Her story is here. Wherever the gospel is read, uh, it is included. Okay, then we have this last, the other part of the sandwich, and then, and then I want to compare Judas and this woman for a moment. Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. At last, here's a way. And they promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. There's a sort of coldness to this. There's not even uh, regret. There's no clear motive even identified. It's just simply for doing it. Uh, perhaps Judas is thinking, okay, if he's going to die, I might as well at least make something out of it, uh, a way to make something. He's watching for an opportunity. Okay, the scene is set, and this all hangs then over everything that happens in the rest of the chapter. The Last Supper, the praying in the garden. We know that Judas has betrayed him. We know that he's been anointed or, or, or prepared for burial. It seems to me we have two pictures here that Mark is calling us to contrast. Judas is using Jesus to get money. Okay, he's using Jesus for his own ends. It doesn't have to be money but he's using Jesus. The woman, on the other hand, Jesus is her end. Jesus is the goal, and she uses what she has towards that end. You see the distinction there? You can have a relationship with Jesus that's using him. It's utilitarian. Okay, I pray to Jesus when I'm in trouble, and it helps, that sort of thing, but my real goal is something else. Or Jesus himself can be the goal, the end. The relationship is the thing itself, and whatever else we have is in that context. And so these two disciples pose for us a, a, a sort of magnifying glass to consider our own lives. Are we using Jesus? Do we pray because we need things? Uh, do we read the Bible because we think then God will be better to us and take care of us? Okay, is that, are, are we using Jesus? Or is the relationship itself the goal and everything else in our life is a means towards that goal? Any other thoughts on these? Uh... Yeah, Ruth. to 
like the oil running down Aaron's hair. Yeah. Weird. And my kid's reaction was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so is there any like relatability to, like, is this like, is this like getting a massage or what? what is, how is this an honoring thing? I just never thought. Yeah, it's going to take forever to wash out. I know. Yeah. It drips on his clothes. <laughs> When I worked in restaurants, there was a bald chef, and when he used olive oil, then he'd go like this, and, go on his head. <laughs> and then he'd wash his hands afterwards. Because <laughs> the oil on the head, that's what it reminds me of. Um, I mean, you're living in a society where people might have smelt bad, a lot of things around you smelt bad, and so this sort of uh, a masking of that with something that smells good is, is part of that. Um, yeah, what would it do to your hair, all that sort of thing? I mean, you're not washing your hair every other day anyway, so. I don't know, did everybody have dreadlocks then? How did that? I think people actually cut their hair fairly short, so the long hair of Jesus is probably no. Um, sorry if that shakes your faith, anyone, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I, I guess I don't know exactly what the modern day analogy would be, but it is, yeah, something, yeah, maybe a spa day, something like that, sort of pampering that seems um, extravagant. Yeah, that, that's probably a good analogy. Um, yeah, thanks, Ruth. Yeah, is it sticky and messy? <laughs> Ruth kind of mentioned it beforehand, but um, she should get credit for it. But the comparison of the value of the ointment that she poured on Jesus and the 30 purchases of silver that Judas yeah. actually sold Jesus for. I wonder what the comparison of those two. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. What a piece of silver would have been worth. Yeah. And I don't know off the top of my head how to convert it. Mm. Yeah, Eva. Just oh, sorry, Albert. Just that Jesus is of infinite worth, and yeah, Judas just says, "Yeah, three pieces of silver." Yeah, yeah, that he sells Jesus for money. She, yeah, yeah, I worship Jesus. One one commentator kind of put a play on words, saying they're both sacrifices of faith. She's sacrificing out of faith. He's sacrificing his faith for for something else. Yeah, Eva, you had your hand up. Yeah, that he should be, Jesus is already meeting his needs, and yet he's, he's seeking happiness elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, Joel. Does this relate back to the Isaiah prophecy that was, he was poured out unto death? Is it possible? Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, they're definitely connected. I'm not sure exactly, I need to think about that. <laughs> yeah, certainly connected that he's being prepared for death. Um, it's kind of a symbolic act. Yeah, yeah, certainly a symbolic act. And then in in the um, in in Isaiah fifty three, there um, he's uh, silent like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, the Passover lambs. I and mean, two days before, this is when people are picking out their lambs, going to market buying their lambs. The high priests they've selected their lamb. Um, I, I think that that yeah that. That we almost can't get our head around how influential Isaiah 53 is on the way that the early church interprets all of Passion Week. So, but yeah, I don't think I'll see it. But yeah, good observation. Yeah, Austin. A quick and unreliable Google search told me that 30 pieces of silver would have been around $250 in today's money. <laughs> so, not your 30000 
Okay, a quick plug. Huh, seems like silver would be more valuable. Told you to switch to DuckDuckGo, Austin. <laughs> 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 uh, yeah, yeah, damn. The, the other, another aspect of this is that Christ was giving himself. Yeah. He gave himself. Yeah. And so, uh, in some senses, Judas's transaction was superfluous. Yeah. Uh, now, mind you, it's all part of the plan, but nonetheless, yeah. uh, it wasn't wasn't as if Christ said, well, okay, they paid 30 pieces of silver for me. I guess I'll go along with this. He was giving, <laughs> he's giving himself, and, and Judas is, yeah, Judas is um, profiteering on a gift. Yeah. And as we'll see in next week's passage at the Last Supper, Jesus is fully aware that he's been betrayed by one of the twelve. Uh, and presumably could stop it, presumably could change his plans for the night to avoid being arrested had he so desired. And so there's a sense in which um, trying to grasp for the words, I'm neighbor's shoes here, I'm uh, <laughs> trying to find the right words to put this, but uh, it, it, it in a sense almost matches up with the woman's act. That it's uh, this wasteful, over-the-top giving, and Jesus is fully aware of what's going to happen, and he allows himself to be given in, in an analogous manner. Help me up, please.